This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I am thrilled today to be sitting down with Dr. Anthony Hatch. Dr. Anthony Hatch is a sociologist and associate professor and chair of the Science and Society program at Wesleyan University, where he is also affiliated faculty in the Department of African American Studies, the College of the Environment, and the Department of Sociology. He is the author of Silent Cells, The Secret Drugging of Captive America, published by Minnesota University Press in 2019, and Blood Sugar, Racial Pharmacology and Food Justice in Black America, published by Minnesota University Press in 2016. He recently appeared in the PBS documentary Blood Sugar Rising, and he lectures widely on health systems, medical technology, and social inequalities. Dr. Hatch received the 2022 Robin W. Williams Distinguished Lectureship Award from the Eastern Sociological Society. In spring 2021, he started Black Box Labs, an undergraduate research and training laboratory that offers students training in qualitative research methods aligned with science and technology studies, and the opportunity to collaborate with faculty on social research. At Wesleyan, Dr. Hatch also serves as the faculty coordinator for the Sustainability and Environmental Justice Pedagogical Initiative and Course Cluster, and he is involved with the Center for Prison Education and Creative Campus Initiative. He is the faculty advisor for the student-run Espresso Cafe and proudly serves on the executive board of the Administrators and Faculty of Color Alliance. Hi, Tony. Good day. So, Tony, you and I connected through a talk that you recently gave at Cal Poly titled Silent Cells, The Secret Drugging of Captive America. The book is described as, and I'm quoting here from the description, a critical investigation into the use of psychotropic drugs to pacify and control inmates and other captives in the vast U.S. prison, military, and welfare systems. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that project. Sure. The Silent Cells project got started in 2009. And I was a brand new assistant professor and met a a person who worked in the Georgia Department of Corrections as a psychiatrist. She was the lead psychiatrist. And she said something that sparked my curiosity about what was going on in prisons. She said that the warden kind of Christmas time would send her and her staff a nice bottle of something because the warden knew that she and her staff kept the prisons quiet. Uh, and this was her response after I asked her you know, what she thought about the use of what are called psychotropic drugs inside U.S. prisons. And you know, this response was, sh- was shocking. I was so perplexed and troubled by what I learned subsequently after that, that conversation. And that began a 10-year-long investigation um, into this question. You know, does our prison system, the federal, state, city, county jails, immigrant detention, secret prisons, um, all these institutions that are formally designated to hold people captive, you know, how were they using these medications? And you know, was this doctor right? Or was she wrong? Right? Uh, and I was really just kind of curious about that, not just because 
It was an important scientific question, an important question for the ethics of medicine, but an important question for the movement to abolish prisons, for the movement to reform at least prisons. So that, that's what that project is organized around, an investigation to try to figure out was this doctor right? And it wasn't easy to figure out. The The book outlined several different kinds of ways we got at this puzzle. One, for example, is by analyzing publicly available audits of prison pharmacies uh, in a chapter called the, the Pharmacy Prison. You know, you can't just walk into prisons and ask them what they're doing, but yet auditors do who work for the state. So we followed those documents and many others to try to piece together the public record of what was known about the use of psychotropic drugs inside prisons and try to understand that in the broader context of sets of, of, of the ways in which psychotropics specifically, but psychiatry more generally contributes to social control, essentially, and the new ways that that might be unfolding in our society. You know, it's so interesting. I remember reading that description of your encounter with the lead psychiatrist uh, in that book and thinking to myself, aha, I know what's going on here. There's there's a previous book that you were thinking about, and here's the kind of thread that you're pulling out from that book. That previous book, Blood Sugar, Racial Pharmacology and Food Justice in Black America, which you published 2016, was a study of how contemporary biomedicine has shaped race and racism as America's health disparities increase. Now, as an academic, I'm really familiar with that kind of way in which a new idea about what I want to do next emerges in the process of a previous project. Was there something that you found or that snagged your interest in writing Blood Sugar that led you to Silent Cells? I wish I could say that the connection was purely intellectual and purely academic, as it were. But as is often the case, it had to do with the, the, my social position and the transition I was in in my life at that time. I was a brand new PhD student. I had earned my PhD in sociology at the University of Maryland and was beginning a new assistant professorship. This, of course, is right at the height of the financial crisis, right? 2008, 2009. I felt very fortunate to have a tenure track job and was very much concerned with trying to make sure that I wasn't making missteps as a young Black scholar, doing work that I thought was critical and, and aimed to take on institutions and take on injustices. I felt like I had to make the right moves. And so I took on a fellowship that uh, led ended up leading to silent cells that wasn't, it didn't on its face seem like it was going to be a great fit for me. I took a chance and it took a while to kind of sort out developing the work that led to blood sugar, my dissertation, and also beginning the work that would slowly but eventually lead to silent cells. So that, that was kind of my, my personal and professional transition I was in at that time. I was interested in finding some connection. And the connection was prescription drugs. I thought, maybe I'll just follow these objects in the prison, right? There, I had come across research in the context of my, my work on metabolic syndrome, which we can come back to, that was uh, had found connections between HIV and metabolic syndrome. And there were all sorts of interesting connections that I, I wanted to explore coming out of my, my work on metabolic syndrome and, and, and scientific racism. But I couldn't quite see a connection to that work. I didn't want to necessarily pick up another piece to that project in prisons. I thought maybe I would do something new. It took a while to figure it out. I, I didn't ha actually have great guidance at the time. It was kind of a struggle. And I think it's in, in some ways, a, a for me, a cautionary tale for young scholars. I, I got, how do I say this? It, it's, it was... 
it took a while to sort out the methodological and the institutional supports I would need to carry out both the work I was doing out of my dissertation that led to the book Blood Sugar and then this new project. That was, it wasn't necessarily a wise thing for me to try to do both at the same time. Nonetheless, I did. And so when I started to poke around and see that there not much was being, was, was written and not much was being published and being said about pharmacopoeia in prisons, right? Just generally speaking, there was some research on kind of healthcare systems. Before I even went to graduate school, I knew about HIV education programs and other health education programs in prisons, but there wasn't a lot of kind of established body of research examining the distribution of pharmaceuticals in prisons and, and how that entire system worked. And so I, I saw this as an opening for, for me to think about how this particular health system is organized, at least in some small part. It's obviously a massive system. And so I had to figure out a way to kind of to break that off in a way that I could kind of hold as a single scholar with not a lot of institutional resources and support. You know, one of the things I really like about your work and I really appreciate about your work is that it's clearly grounded in questions of the scientific method, questions of scientific practices. I think it really expands our idea of what science and technology is. And one of the things that I like to do on this series is to expand our definition of technology. Your work, I think, is right in that kind of uh, intersection of thinking about you know, what technology comprehensively and capaciously means. I think a lot of folks, by the way, hear that word technology and immediately connect it to the digital, to Google, to maybe questions about AI and bias. Is food justice or the use of psychotropic drugs in prison an issue that we should consider, consider under the rubric of technology? What makes pharmacology or psychotropic drugs technological? This is a great question, and we should totally break this down because this is the crux at, uh, of what I see my work contributing to, and it's in part the crux of what I do here in my position in the Science and Society program at Wesleyan in, in Connecticut, where I teach and have, have been doing this work for a few years now. We have a common conception of technology as a tool, right? A technology is a tool. It's a material thing. It can It's used by a user. So there you have, on one hand, a, a conception of technology as a material object, and there's been a kind of a focus on the kind of material history of technology as a, an actual thing in the world that you can kind of knock on wood and feel. At the same time, there's a, an analysis of technology that focuses on the intentions and prerogatives and interests of users and creators of technology, right? So there's the users, there's kind of user-centric work. There's also work thinking about the designers of tech and their interests and positions. And those are important as second layer of analysis to include. There's yet a third meaning of technology, I think, that is even more intriguing and much more expansive. And that is a view of technology as world building, right? So when humans use these tools, they're not just using them to no effect, they're actually making worlds as they go. And so that world building aspect of technology places an extra burden on the, the users and the designers and the kind of ecologists 
if you will, to think about the system level effects of the the technologies that are created, material or otherwise. And so this view of technology, not just it references material technologies, but also ideas, concepts as important ways of carving up and organizing the world, ways of intervening on the world, including most centrally, uh, for my work, human bodies, right? And so those three conceptions are important for people to understand, at least in my mind, uh, uh, that world building aspect of technology. And that just places extra burdens on us. It's so interesting. I want to pick your brain a little bit more about that, but I just want to intervene and say very quickly that when I talk to my students about that word technology, sometimes the question I get is, well, you're a professor of English literature. Why are you teaching an ethics of technology class? And I say, well, you know, before before we can create anything, we first have to imagine it. And the way that technology develops is through the realm of imagination. It matters what stories we're told. It matters what we think that we're doing. Oftentimes, science fiction becomes the template on which we build some of our technologies. Minority Report is a good example of a space that I think builds a dystopia and then launches a whole sphere of kind of predictive technologies to be used in policing. And and the link between that and the, the kind of ways in which this dystopian imaginary then becomes the source of productive imaginary ideation, uh, it to me is quite significant and, and worth exploring. The other thing I tell my students sometimes is that if we break down that word technology, it actually comes from the Greek, which is the Greek word techne, which means art or craft. And I think that that brings us back to a couple of different things that that ground us back in the idea of the human body, the human values that are woven or crafted into the, the things that we build, but also the essential way in which technology itself cannot just be a practice of pure technical building, that it is also a practice deeply grounded in the considerations and the culture of art and values. And can I just say, you've, you've said that the word, the, I think the word culture is is really important there. And increasingly, the, the work of scholars in an area called cultural studies has been influential for me in thinking about this question that you raise of the imaginary, of the, the meaning people attribute and produce through their interactions with each other and in these technologically mediated worlds that they've created for themselves. This is very much about meaning and very much about understanding and having tools for, for interpreting meaning. Meaning isn't always straightforward. That's something people understand in their everyday lives. But when we when it comes to the meaning of what a technology is, when it comes to the meaning of what are called discourses, it's not straightforward. And so we have to have a systematic way of breaking that down and thinking about that in terms of a cultural system. And that is one way in which technology is linked to kind of culture. Um, and, I, and I know that you are doing that work as well. I wanted to ask you to link what you said just now to, and earlier in the answer to the first part of the question, to pharmacology and psychotropic drugs specifically. What about those two things do we need to understand in order to think of them in the rubric of the technological? What is it about these two things that fits them into that corner of technological? And perhaps the second part of the question is how does our understanding of the technological as a encompassing these two terms in these two areas maybe change what we think when we use that word technology? 
It's a good question. And in the case of silent cells and psychotropics and the prison system, there's a term that people should be familiar with, and that term is called techno-corrections. Techno-corrections. And this was a policy, a formal-esque policy approach to prisons that the United States government advocated and adopted. And this essentially involved the, the adoption of new technologies to try to control costs and manage unruly and violent situations, both inside prisons, but also in the larger society. And this was in, in the year 2000, uh, an article came out around about techno-corrections. And I, I followed this in, in the book Silent Cells. And Techno-corrections involved digital tracking and surveillance that involved biological and kind of neurological risk assessment and psychotropics. And the idea here is that these ubiquitous technologies, now now they actually are quite commonplace. We don't, we don't really bat an eye. Uh, psychotropics are kind of are widely consumed out here in so-called free society. And so to talk about them being distributed in prisons isn't so unusual. But this techno-corrections, what it does is it presses the body through the prism of prison culture. It like forces the body, and in case in the case of what I'm arguing in silent cells, the mind, the spirit, you know, through this uh, grid of intelligibility, the body has to now be understood and has to have meaning in this particular context. And that context is one where you can't cause trouble. You know, there's too many of y'all in here in the first place. We need to keep this institution under control. So here you go. And so the technology becomes a means by which an institution can achieve a cultural system, a world that they envision as the one that they're trying to, to be in, if, if you will. So this is true in prisons. It's true in the U.S. military. This is, I think, one of the most compelling cases to me in Silent Cells. This is, just has to do with the use of psychotropics in the active duty military, right? The, the, what they're normalizing there when they're giving out psychotropics to, to soldiers in live war zones is that, you know, this is a normal course of affairs and get used to it, right? This is the culture now, and this is where you live. And so, you know, the acceptability is something that is previewed in cultural forms. Uh, Michelle Brown had a lovely book I, I teach from called The Culture of Imprisonment, which shows how these representations of prison, you know, planted in, in pop culture and in other sites, then kind of preview, as you said, like Minority Report, a world that's coming, right? Everyone remembers that robot dog from Black Mirror that then showed up on the streets of New York City. And there's a black woman in that video. She's like, oh, hell no. See what they got now? They got this dog out here. And they really did have that robotic dog on the street. And so uh, we, we, we recognized it. They had already previewed it. And I think that's an important and a really important piece. Absolutely. This kind of concept of pre-programming the present. You know, what you were just saying leads right into my next question, which is about how psychotropic drugs are only one of several technologies deployed in prisons. Because as you mentioned, and, you know, I'm thinking surveillance technologies, technologies of captivity, and of course, modern decisions about how to deploy capital punishment. I believe that there's a case up right now in, I think it's Utah, although I'm not sure. Or maybe should correct that on, on the record, that's asking prisoners to choose between capital punishment and, and death by execution, firing squad, or by lethal injection. So this is, I think, a much broader question than psychotropic drugs in terms of the use of these technologies and the ethics of these technologies in prisons circumambiently. Is psychotropic drugging something specific and unique in terms of the technologies deployed in prison? Or is it part of a broader system of using technology as a means to control targeted captive populations in prisons. 
This was part of what emerged over years of trying to track and trace what was happening in prison. Along with several students of mine uh, at Georgia State University, doctoral students, graduate students, we began to kind of, I know that we were all tasked with just finding any and everything that pops up about psychotropics. We were you know, surveying the kind of wide landscape. And of course, one of the things we came across pretty early on was a kind of a vast body of research showing that psychotropics had been, there's a history of misuse of psychotropics in nursing homes and among children who were held in the foster system. I mean, the history of regulation, history of, of over-medication, of abusive situations, you know, lack of a proper assessment, just, you know, Congress had responded in several cases and there was just this kind of continuing problem. So early on, I thought that as a rhetorical strategy and as a comparative strategy, what would it look like to position the prisoner alongside this, the, the, the elder in the nursing home or alongside the ward of the state or alongside the soldier fight again fighting in 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 war if you think that these are problematic cases then you must think that the, the case of the prison is also problematic so it was in some way it was my, my a, a part of my desire to kind of link comparatively the social position of the, the prisoner to the position of these different kinds of of, of persons who are uh, in a position of disempowerment. U.S. law treats them in a certain, actually in a very similar kind of way with respect to their rights to refuse medication, to be medicated against their will. Same sets of laws give the, the state, the government, the power to medicate all those different populations, including other populations that I did not know about early on. And those were convicted sex offenders, the use of high dose SSRIs to as sexual calmatives. I didn't know about those, those practices, right? We didn't know about the use of psychotropics in the contemporary war on terror. Uh, as so-called truth serum, right, in enemy to in use in enemy combatants, we certainly didn't know anything about their use in the context of immigrant detention. So these institutional contexts radically expanded for me my conception of what was meant by not just the technology, because it certainly was a technique in that sense, a way of achieving a kind of order, or at least a way of attempting to achieve a kind of order. That kind of order is never actually fully achieved. It's always messy and violent and gross when the effort is made to try to push human bodies or push any biological thing through a system that isn't designed to foster that thing's life. When you push a living thing through a system designed to kill that thing, the thing dies. And so that is part of what's so shocking that in all those situations of social and physical and in what I call psychic death, the state is kind of using these, these technologies to try to produce a world. And in doing so, they're producing a massive amount of profit. And that was something that you know, I tried to track in the book as well, because when that happens, you can almost hear the cash register chinging, right? Those are, there are contracts that are delivering those medicines. And so we shouldn't see it as a benign, as only a benign and medical thing, but we have to think about that as a part of a broad strategy of containment that is designed to, you know, what is it designed to do? I mean, that's what I, what I hope the book, my, my work to raise the question for people of you know what what actually is going on we don't see all of what's happening but what we see is worrisome and it you know if you're worried about your your our elder in the nursing home who's being medicated with high with uh, antidepressants and with antipsychotics we should also be worried about the soldier these other figures and this is a uniquely american problem i, t I think
think. You just said something I think quite remarkable there, which is, you know, there was a moment where you said, which is designed to, and then you paused and you said, well, what is it designed to do? This is such a wonderful moment to pause at because I think that in general, one of the kind of undergirding mythologies to technology is that it's designed to make our lives better, make our lives easier, designed to build a more utopian human form of living. And, you know, the question when we introduce these kinds of jobs, I think, comes up into, into what, what kind of society do we think we're building? How do we think that this makes society better? Do our technologies and our vision for our technologies really match up to those human values? Sometimes I ask my students, you know, okay, you get to choose a package about how you're going to spend your weekend. Package number one includes you spend your day at the computer, filling out forms, checking on certain processes, making sure that your health insurance is in place, checking boxes boxes, signing forms, paying credit card bills, and then ordering food on your on your app on your phone that gets delivered to you. Package number two, you go on a kayaking trip and then you spend some time out gathering berries and picking some vegetables. And then you spend some time hiking through a forest. Which package are you going to pick? I say package two. Obviously, package two is what I do on my weekend. <laughs> you know, package two is what I do so that I don't have to do package number one. But then when we say this new exciting technology is developing this kind of labor-free or easier existence, whether it is labor-free because we don't have to deal with the actual complex psychology of other people, so we drug them, or whether it has to do with not wanting to deal with the complexity of the social issues that give rise to captivity in prisons, we choose the techno fix. And this is a really interesting question for me of exactly what you said. Well, what is it exactly that we think that we are doing with these technological fixes? How do these technological fixes actually make our life better? And what kind of world are we trying to imagine or build? It's a great question. I mean, the essayist Roland Wright had a lovely book years ago called The Brief History of Progress. And this is a progress trap, right? Technology creates this lovely progress trap for us where we totally think we're getting ahead and we're totally not. Because our so-called progress really is the progress of really a few at the expense of the many. Those things are tied together inexorably through what sociologists and Black feminists call a matrix of domination. One person's privilege literally comes at the expense of someone else through someone else's subordination. That's how this social system works. And technology is part of the narrative told about it is, again, that it's going to make things better. One of the counterintuitive findings of both, I think, silent cells and my earlier work on metabolic syndrome is that sometimes these inventions don't actually amount to much. And when you actually look kind of in a, in a sober and neutral or and when you take the position of the least among us, right, when you take the position of the, not the, the, the sufferer of metabolic syndrome or the, the, not even to, to focus on the voice of the, the prisoner, but when you really focus on the people making the decisions, the institutions of power and their practices it actually doesn't seem to be working. Psychotropics, for example, may actually be keeping mass incarceration going and that's not necessarily making things better, not by a long shot. Actually, it may be the very thing keeping us from making things better, right? This, I mean, in the last chapter of the book is called Overdose, because sometimes it's just too much. Now we have a flavor for this in the pandemic, how much tech tech is too much tech. We have some, some sense of maybe what that's like. But I think that we're in a situation where there's been too much techno-corrections. There's been too an overcorrection. 
And so, you know, when an institution becomes so reliant on this kind of practice, this kind of technology, the forces that at, at play are going to work to ensure that that situation does not change. And so that becomes a problem for reform, uh, efforts at reasonable reform, evidence-based and the like. It also becomes a barrier to much more transformative and revolutionary forms of imagining a world otherwise, where we did not need to, you know, drug 30% of a population in order to have a captive, you know, captive situation. And and that that's I think that's to me the the lesson, right? That sometimes the technology really does make things worse. And we have to actually look at that because sometimes the fix actually makes the thing worse. And in uh, the sociologist Robert Merton, you know, in his analysis of unintended consequences, you know, this is kind of what you look at. And I follow at least that piece of, of that tradition. You know, it's so interesting. Let me be straight. We are engaging right now virtually through a technology and very grateful for that technology for enabling this conversation. We just went through a pandemic that I think would have been extra painful had we not had kind of technological advances. And in the scenario that I just gave, the kayak trip versus staying online, I'm also not accounting for the fact that when I'm not running from creditors, I would have otherwise been running from predators in the kayaking trip. So I want to be clear that I am not a Luddite or banishing technology here. But I do think it is worth thinking expansively about what actually makes our lives better. And I also think it's really important to think about what you mentioned earlier, which is the reaches of technological production, not just in terms of what actual technologies get produced, but the ways in which those systems of production are tied to things like money. You know, sometimes I think, gosh, if I create a pill that keeps captives drugged so that they're not a problem for the wardens, then I'm a millionaire, right? If I, if I create that pill, I am a very wealthy person. If I instead study prison systems and I think about why you know, we, we create violent people and why our systems seem to have such problems managing those people both inside prisons and to the structures leading up to the point where people are imprisoned, then I am an academic, <laughs> not the millionaire. And I think about the way that our system kind of rewards these techno fixes, sometimes I think at the expense of thinking more capaciously and thoroughly about the actual nature of the problem. You know, this is a question that I think a lot about in terms of of what we do as non-technical scholars thinking about technology. And I kind of wonder about that engagement as well. Like, what do we accomplish (laughs) in our work and why is it so unequally rewarded by financial systems in the way that that is dispersed? It's a good question because I think it's one that it has relevance and meaning outside of the you know university classroom. You know, when you break it down, you know, kind of, you know, in, in so-called layperson's terms, street level terms, just every, you know, everyday parlance, if you will. And, you know, not everyone has an opportunity to understand these complex technical systems and, and, and research them and, and, and make sense of them. But we interface with them all the time. Food, for example. You know, in my work, I've been arguing that food is a kind of you know material technology you know, that transforms the body, and so food is certainly designed a, de- a designed thing in our in our moment. Now, do you need to have an advanced and technological understanding of what food is to know that you know it changes and impacts your body? No, but you probably need to understand what that food is and understand that it's not what you know the food of our our you know two or three generations ago. So, in my teaching, I you know often 
reason, you know, about half the students I teach are students who are science majors, about half of them are not. When I give lectures, sometimes I'm lecturing to a group of physicians or, you know, a group of community workers or people who are doing allied health work. And I think that it's really important to be able to have all these different audiences and communities understand the stakes of, of technological um, change and transformation, whether it's in terms of psychotropics, whether it's in terms of food systems, and certainly in terms of, of, of things like the, the internet and social media and, and the rest, um, out, and, you know, the, the data revolution that's already already here the AI revolution that's already here. I don't know. There's a, certainly a certain kind of skepticism and maybe even a fear, but also I think a certain kind of um, reticence and we've already been settled, right? This is already settled territory and the body that is our society. So you have to just kind of get used to the settlement if that's what it, if that's what it feels like. I wanted to pick up on something you said there, which is that you talk to doctors and you talk to scientists. I'm curious about that because I think it goes to a broader question about the relationship that we have to people doing kind of the, the technical or scientific work. I buy completely what you're talking about, which is that the biological dimension of ourselves, what it means to be a biological being, to live in a human body is also mediated always through technologies and cultural systems. I buy it. I buy the premise. I'm sold on your work. But I'm also a humanities scholar. What response do you get from folks in medicine or biology or the scientists or the doctors that you talk to or, or folks in STEM? fields. How do they receive your work? Medical doctors are a great group. I had the opportunity to speak to a group yesterday at Emory University School of Medicine. And doctors are pragmatic and doctors are, are for the most part, pretty smart. But doctors haven't been trained in you know, the structural foundations of health inequality. Doctors haven't had training in medical humanities where they've understood and listened to the voices of the sufferer. Or they've persistently you know, understood the doctor writer and they've understood the narrative form and meaning. Right? They have to take one class in English for pre-med. Now they just upped it to two, two English classes for pre-med. So, you know, they have to take a whole body of science courses in order to understand that work. And they don't have this training. And I, my conversations with them have actually always been quite generative. I think they're often hungry for this, this work that contextualizes what they do in a way that they encounter every day in some ways. So my, my work in the book Blood Sugar on metabolic syndrome is a good example of this. Metabolic syndrome is this, this medical idea that encompasses the major risk factors for heart disease and stroke, right? So a person is said to have metabolic syndrome if they are have high blood sugar, if they have, are hypertensive, if they have high cholesterol, and if they're overweight or obese. And if, usually there's other markers of inflammation or a C-reactive protein, for example, is often considered. But these are the major risk factors. And so metabolic syndrome is, is basically you having three out of those, any five, and you're really at high risk. So, you know, doctors and researchers, epidemiologists created this idea to try to understand who was really at the highest risk. But in clinical practice, it wasn't useful because everybody had comorbidities, right? Everybody had different comorbidities. It was actually not a straightforward empirical matter whether or not if you had all three, which three mattered most, 
right? There were all sorts of kind of detailed, almost mathematical questions about this construct that didn't really factor into how doctors were making decisions with their patients about how to treat, you know, out of control diabetes, for example, in a social context that's inundated with sugar, right? How do you treat diabetes in what I call a sugar ecology, where this is a sugar-rich environment, you're going to have lots of diabetes here, right? That's So avoiding that is becomes a really difficult thing for individual patients to do. Nonetheless, my, my experiences have been that that doctors are, are, I think, open to and want to understand the kind of broader social and political and economic context of their work. Where they get caught up, though, is around this question of technology, which, of course, they engage with and largely accept um, and rely on, and also issues of epistemology and truth, right? What is true? What is not true? What is fuzzy and in between? And when it comes to meaning and humans, there's a lot of fuzzy and in between. And so I think some of that gets hard to reconcile in the kind of more rigid, formulaic decision-making structures that physicians use, certainly in the more kind of formulaic versions of the scientific method that produced most, most biomedicine in our moment. And I think those are, are complexities that aren't often appreciated in, in the context of medical education. You know, there's something that you're working on right now that I think is really exciting. That's, I think, trying to develop this kind of broader understanding. That's the Black Box Labs project. In addition to your academic background as a trained sociologist, you're also the chair of the Science and Society program at Wesleyan University, uh, where you've just opened this project, Black Box Labs. I'm fascinated by the project. What was your vision for Black Box Labs? What were you trying to create? We're very much still, I think, in the process of making it. It feels a little bit like designing the car as you build it, driving down the road uh, with the pandemic chasing you down, chasing you, right? So the, the, the pandemic obviously has impacted my life as a professor and teacher and researcher. I had intentions of doing one project that I needed to pause when the pandemic hit. So I was in conversation with a good colleague of mine, Clifton Watson, who is the director of the Jewett Center for Community Partnerships here at Wesleyan, which is actually is the home for the Center for Prison Education, another institution I've been involved with um, for several years now, teaching Wesleyan courses in Connecticut men and women's prisons. And off, we now offer a bachelor's de- uh, degree to these, to these students. I was thinking about a way to build capacity, a way to amplify message, a way to expand, you know, the number of trained folks at the table in our community here at Wesleyan and and locally here in central Connecticut. So I was just thinking about working collectively with students. Students at Wesleyan are exceptionally often exceptionally bright and engaged and energized and creative. And so I have worked with them in the past and have written with them and researched with them. And so I thought that we should train them. Let's develop a a, a way of training kind of under the kind of, um, you know, give a man official for a day, teach him how to fish, he'll eat forever kind of idea to train students in qualitative research methods so that they can, of course, be empowered to do their own work and work with others, but also get training in design, illustration, performance art, speaking, the whole range of ways of disseminating information so that we might actually be useful to uh, each other and to organizations who would work on behalf of what is right. And so, you know, I was, you know, thinking about I had a hard time coming up with a name. Uh, honestly, I was I was Justice Lab. I had all sorts of ideas that we, we xing them out. 
And nonetheless, the the black box you know came to me. And and as I realized that there were all sorts of inputs and, and influences in this concept of the black box, one of which is the probably for me the most personal, and that is the black box theater. Um, I was a I went to a performing arts high school in Atlanta, Georgia. I was a performer, a singer, actor, dancer, and did a little bit of technical theater. And so I have long had a love for for the performing arts and engage cultural work in my my scholarship in all sorts of ways. So as a prof- space for performance, as a space for intimacy, and a space for creativity, the lab is intended to, to be that probably most importantly. It's also an important concept in science and technology studies, right? Technology often forms this black box, right? Through the concept of black boxing, right? What's, what's in there? What's it do? Well, we have to decons- open it up and deconstruct it. And sometimes we will do work like that. And then, of course, there's the story of Henry Box Brown. It's, it's an amazing story. You know, shipped himself to freedom in a wooden crate and uh, upon arriving in the North, became an abolitionist and performer um, and, and used this in, in, in his show, again, would get in the box and come out of the box. And it was this, this important performative work a tie to, to, to justice, to in this case, to abolition and, and to specifically to Black people that I found just so, so compelling. And so those three meanings kind of percolate in what we're going to do. We have a lot of work to do, but the students in the lab have been working really hard at building our website. We've built a project called Visualizing Corporate Ecologies. The whole title is Visualizing Corporate Ecologies in the Carceral State. And in this project, we're trying to think about how food and pharmaceutical systems come together in the prison and whether there's overlap and how we can kind of understand that connection. And students are also assisting me with a project called The Data Will Not Save Us, Afro-Pessimism in the, in the COVID-19 Archives, which is, of course, about the pandemic. I want to pick your brain about that in a second. But, but before we get into COVID-19, I just have a few more questions about this Black Box project, which first question has to do really with my excitement at seeing a space on campus that's really, as I see it, bringing students together to think thoughtfully and across disciplines and across methodologies about science and about technology. And I'm curious, you know, I know it's a new project, so you may not have this feedback yet. But one of the things that I'm interested in, in developing a space for ethical technology is training students, particularly students who don't have technical backgrounds, to go into course trajectories that are going to put them in the space of ideation and production where they can bring the kind of teaching and the kind of thinking that we do outside of the tech disciplines that I think is really critical to the processes of ideation and creation and understanding and the complexity of social systems that we've talked about into that arena. Do you have a vision or a sense of what you're training students to do or what the equipment that you're giving them in this lab will enable them to do once they graduate and leave? Do you have a hope for what kind of change you're you're making through this kind of educational equipment? I know what we aspire to do, what I hope to do with my colleague, Matali Takur, who is joining me in in building this lab. And our, our position in the science and society program kind of uniquely positions us to tackle these questions in a certain kind of way. 
Our program began in the 1970s, when across the United States, there was an, a newfound recognition and interest in building interdisciplinary programs in science and technology studies, specifically in liberal arts teaching environments. In a liberal arts context, we, you know, we have arts and humanities division, we have social sciences, we have mathematical and natural sciences, but in practice, many of us don't play neatly in one sandbox. We like to engage many different different kinds of work. And so, you know, I joined this, the, the faculty in the Science and Society program in 2015. I'm a sociologist by training, but I have a background in kind of public health. I was trained as a historical comparative sociologist, but also a statistician. And I was doing work in science studies. Now I have doing this work in art. So I think that kind of multimodal, polyvocal analytic is important. And actually, our students get trained in this. They have to take courses in a science, but then they have to take courses in philosophy of science history of science, sociocultural studies of science, and that broad-based interdisciplinary training gives them multiple angles of vision on the kinds of problems that we take up. Sometimes those problems have to do with questions around tech. Sometimes they have to do with questions around science and medicine. We'll, we're going to take projects as they come, but our training is going to be focused on you know, kind of standard qualitative methods in science technology studies, for example, you know, how do you do a really good interview? Really basic stuff, right? How do you examine a text and understand what a discourse is saying? How do you analyze an image that you see on a screen, right? Conversely, how do you build an image on a screen? You know, how do you build a website? How do you design a, 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 what, what we are thinking of as a certain kind of propaganda campaign or a media campaign, right? Where we have information to share, we have a message to get out. Well, then how do we get this message out? So sometimes we're going to be analyzing things, other times we're going to be making things. And it's that an the analysis and the making, the creating together, sometimes with student projects, other times on our own work that, and, and hopefully in some time in, in combination and in, in dialogue with community part, um, that's harder to do. And has in, in the sense that you really have to be prepared and trained. You know, the last thing I would want to do is, is, is be in a position of trust with community partners, you know, our local you know, neighbors here in Middletown and not come with a high quality program and, and well-trained and competent people. So that's kind of what I'm aiming for. At least that's my vision for today. <laughs> we'll, we'll see where we are in about three months. I wanted to pick up on something that you had mentioned earlier, which is your COVID-19 data project. One of the projects you're currently working on in Black Box Labs has to do with the governance of that COVID-19 data and archives of COVID-19 data. What's the scope and the aim of that project? Inspired by Black Box Labs, I'll just draw on Janet Jackson. You know, Janet Jackson said it best, you know, what have you done for me lately, right? I love that song. And here... I'm asking this question about all of the coronavirus data and really the entire project of racial health disparities research. This is a skeptical and kind of dark question that came to me early in the pandemic. I was frustrated. I kept seeing this kind of parade of commentaries about racial health inequality, specifically targeting African-Americans and their susceptibility to, to the virus over the course of March, April into May of 2020. The trickle started coming out. Who and everyone, it's almost like we ought to, we already knew who was going to be most at risk. You didn't actually need the data science to show that, 
But nonetheless, the Trump administration, through its, I would argue, kind of conscious and intentional rerouting of the entire data infrastructure for for how a government should manage a pandemic. You know, they they did so in part to allow the pandemic to kind of boil over. And so I asked the question, you know, can the, the project is titled, you know, the, the data will not save us. And it's an end that I'm asking, both in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the larger project of racial health disparities, once we get all this data documenting racial disparities in diabetes or heart disease or coronavirus or AIDS, Right. How does that data then translate into a policy process that then leads to a reduction in black death? Right. Or a reduction in those disparities. And so I just started kind of thinking, well, what disparities have actually been reduced or eliminated over all these years of this data science becoming such an important part of epidemiology and public health and sociology and all over in medicine, NIH funding and the rest? And I'm not literally seeing that evidence because the systems that are producing the inequality are continuing to produce the inequalities that produce the racial inequality, right? So the project is trying to understand, you know, what the Trump administration was doing with respect to the data on racial inequality in the pandemic for testing coronavirus deaths and the like, and try to situate it in the context of a broader set of rather skeptical and pessimistic questions about whether or not what all that data is going to buy um, Black people, essentially, in terms of justice, right? What's that data going to do? It's not enough by itself, is what I'm thinking. Do you have any theories about what the administration might have been doing in collecting that data? Or is it just the process that I see a lot in data collection, which is data collection that's very circumspect in trying to pick up every single piece of minutia and every single kind of ephemera without a clear sense of what the aim and the end object is? Right. Actually, one of the doctors I spoke with recently about this said, yes, I, I like to gather more data when, I'm, when I don't want to take a decision. Right. So sometimes we don't we gather more data when we're you know, we literally have a need don't know. and We need to actually and act, what I think the Trump administration did was was quite the opposite. Not taking a decision was what they were going to do regardless of what the data showed. The Trump administration engaged in, in, a, in a state authority handoff. They literally gave the authority over governing the pandemic to the states, much like the question of enslavement, actually, right, in the federal government, turning it over to the states to decide for themselves whether or not they could hold black people. Well, in this case, the Trump administration allowed for states' rights, right, <laughs> to, to win the day again, allowing for some states to open and close and if you look, the states that were more open were Republican states, where, in fact, in the South, where there's most, most Black people in the country still live. So I think as soon as they figured out who was, di- who was dying, Black people, prisoners, agricultural workers, immigrants, they were like, oh, this is, it's kind of sardonic to say, but I think that's kind of what they wanted. I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to assuage my cynicism by actually looking at the record and situating this case, which seems extraordinary, in the context of other cases, the broader body of health disparities, Richard. I don't think, I think that this, what's happening here is not just, it's a form of structural gaslighting, essentially. Right where we engage ourselves in, in data and we do all the data science. And while we're doing the data science, the inequalities are still doing their work behind us while we're, while we're kind of waiting for the data to get in. And so the theory, the theoretical ideas I'm bringing to bear on this case come from Afro-pessimism, which is a, a, a loose body of ideas and critical race theory broadly defined 
that tries to understand the meaning of Blackness in the context of the afterlife of slavery, right? In the context of Afro-pessimism, it totally makes sense that the government would do this. That's what they've been doing all along, right? It's not a surprise, right? One wouldn't be surprised when the government kills Black people. One would actually think that this actually is a situation that cannot be reformed. And so, you know, what is the status of, of the Black body in this society? I mean, one only need to look at the case of, of Mr. Floyd to understand that you know, Black life can be, isn't, isn't even a thing to be negated. And so that, that logic of negation, the logic of a, of a Black body being a body that cannot be protected, it cannot be saved, it's already, in a certain sense, already dead. Is, a, is an idea that we have to challenge. We have to challenge it in the pandemic. We have to challenge it in the context of diabetes, for sure. Because if you know, diabetes is going to take some Black lives in the next 40, 50 years, it's going to be tragic. So those are the ideas that I think are neat, those critical ideas, which some of which have emerged in the, in the humanities, right? People like Sadia Hartman, scholars like Frank Wilderson, right? Who aren't, so, these aren't social scientists in any sense. These are English professors. They're poets, people understanding language and meaning and trying to understand how these ideas relate to our social order. They have relevance for how we study medicine. They have re relevance for how we study technology and certainly how we study health and health inequality. Yeah. I mean, I think about data here in terms of not only data as collecting information about the past, but data as prediction and the way that data gathers information about the past presumably so as to pre-program the present and to predict the future and to create kind of that feedback loop between those things. This is a concept, and I want to give credit, in Afrofuturism, and in particular by a thinker, I believe a sociologist named Kodwo Eshen, who talks about the kind of feedback loop that happens between data collection and prediction here. And that's something that I'm really interested in. How should we think about the collection of, of health data specifically? Are you concerned about this kind of collection and the way that it kind of pre-programs the present and predicts? the future and creates those feedback loops? I think this is a really good question. And it's forced me to think through how in all of my work, this issue of the data actually is quite central, right? The information and what and how scientists and other people collecting and interpreting the data make use of it. Much of my work has been influenced methodologically by the French thinker Michel Foucault whose ideas of, about genealogy were really important for me. And without going into a, a class lecture on this, you know, genealogy wants to know how a knowledge that is ostensibly true is inserted into power relationships. What happens when a knowledge that they claim is true is inserted? That claim to truth is based upon data in the context of metabolic syndrome, there were decades of population-based studies looking at establishing the entire body of risk factors, right, for metabolic disease. Those data were used to produce risk statistics that were trying to do just like you say, predict who's going to get sick, who's not going to get sick. And that risk, that discourse of risk was used to organize state policy, was used to organize scientific research, was organized, was used to organize corporate marketing strategies around the management of metabolic syndrome in the context of silent cells. One of the puzzles was that the government isn't collecting the data that they need to understand how they're actually using the psychotropics that they are buying. And that seemed to me to be a problem because if you're not collecting that data, how do you know that what you're doing isn't right? I mean, 
or at least you, are you tracking it at all at all? So in this case, it was like the absence of data meant something more nefarious than what the data meant if you actually had the data to look at. In the context of coronavirus, you know, I'm I'm not sure yet, honestly, right? It seems to me that knowledge when 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 in the hands of the Trump administration, knowledge that something was hurting black people, well, that wasn't a good thing for them to know. Like that they were actively hurting black people themselves. Like that wasn't so it just seemed to me that that knowledge could be weaponized by when wielded by a certain kind of state power. And so we have to be, I think, attentive to all those different uses of data, right? And when, when the data, when the information, when analyzed and produced and as a fact or not, is inserted into how the society is organized, we have to track that. It's not just looking at the policy implications of science. It's literally thinking about how the formation of truth is linked to a particular way of governing. And that's why issues of technology are important, because technologies provide the material linkage between a system of ideas, a vision, and a governing order, an economic order, a a material reordering of nature and our relationship to it. I I mean, those are really important questions for me uh, around data. I joke that I'm a recovering empiricist. Right, that I, I kind of was trained as a statistician and data as a kind of data scientist. I, I could crunch the numbers, right? But I've also been trained in qualitative research and interpretive research and narrative and storytelling. And so all those different kinds of data have to be considered as well, not just you know fixated on what institutions of power know and don't know, but also broadening it out to what people know, right? What they know in their lives, in their own bodies, that's valid as well. And when we look at that and produce from from that, new forms, new innovative forms of social relation can emerge. Yeah, I've heard it said this way, how we count and what we count tells us what counts to us. And that, I think, is a really concise way of thinking about it and putting it. And of course, as a narrative scholar, I think that stories ought to count, sometimes can tell us things that that the numbers cannot. I wanted to ask a question now about who does the counting and how that might matter, because I go back and forth in my concern about the collection of health data between being concerned that the government possesses my data and given our last administration, concerned that I ought not to trust that government to handle that data equitably and responsibly and in my best interest, and then being more concerned about private corporations collecting and using my data. If you remember, especially in the earlier moments of the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation about contact tracing, companies and government agencies developing surveillance technologies to track COVID exposure through your phone or your wearable or your smart device or whatever kind of thing that you possess that's sending information about your behavior to another entity. Of course, especially in the throes of a health crisis, there's a clear benefit to public health in doing that. But even as I saw that clear benefit, I couldn't help but think of one entity, you know, any entity that I would actually trust to track me. Corporations can monetize my data and manipulate my behavior in that kind of feedback loop with their possession of my data. And meanwhile, I don't even want to think about what the previous administration uh, in office at the time that the pandemic began would have potentially done with the tracking systems installed on our phones, presumably, but with no assurance that it would exclusively track our movements for public health purposes. What do you think? Should I be more concerned that Facebook is tracking me or that the state is tracking me? 
Oh, I'm worried. I'm I'm in some sense worried about both, but in some sense the the government tracking us and producing knowledge about us you know, goes back to the very origins of the modern nation state, right? The census is the first thing that a nation state must do, is it must establish a knowledge about this population. And so the whole set of knowledges emerge around producing knowledge about a population that comes in inside of science, that it really isn't about companies getting information about you at all. This is about a mode of government and a mode of governance that if we didn't have it, we, we wouldn't actually be governed very well. We wouldn't have be able to have a society in which uh, it's possible to make claims about inequity, for example. Take, for example, France. In France, they don't measure race. So they don't measure the race of, we're all French, right? They stopped measuring race. So what do you do if you're an, uh, an African migrant, right? Well, we're all French, yet there's extraordinary inequalities that are allowed to per perpetuate themselves when no one is tracking that issue. So you got you do have to engage in some institutional kind of looking at a population. But now I think the cat is out of the bag, right? There's a, such an extraordinary proliferation of knowledges and data about us and our purchases are, I mean, if you have a debit card, all your purchases, all the stuff you've looked at, I mean, you'd have, you, you can't actually, it would be very difficult to have a security culture environment as a kind of normative citizen that actually shielded you and the information about you from all of the dragnet, right, of systems. The entire internet, the entirety of the, of hyperspace is a militarized and closed environment. So everything that happens in it, <laughs> in some sense, is known and knowable. And so I think that we should be worried about both if we're interested in having anything approximating a democratic society. But we do need to have some data. We need to be governed by data and, and ruled by data in some key ways that do require check. They require community check, essentially. Um, so the data cannot be misused or cannot be propagandized as often happens, uh, as certainly happened in the context of the pandemic. But I want to come back to this issue of feedback loop, which I think is a really important piece. And that is that we're talking about a feedback loop where the loop itself is changing over time, right? That the causal arrows linking a technology in the social order are themselves being conditioned as they go. It's like the feedback loop tells us about causal ordering and process, but it, it in some ways tunes us out to the ways in which the world that is, is looping back is itself being conditioned as the system is propagating forward in time. And so I mean, my, my work in metabolic analysis and metabolic studies is, is informing this, right? Like that, that loop actually is a really important, that mechanism of coming back is very important to kind of track and trace. But you know, I, again, I did purchase, again, a new phone recently, and I have not yet activated the health app, if you will, you know, for just almost as a point of pride, but not because I think it actually has any material effect on what Apple or Facebook or whomever else does or doesn't know about me. No, but I mean, to get back to the idea of feedback loops, it's also what you know about yourself. You know, I wonder sometimes whether in the process of, I, I talk to my students sometimes about the way that our technologies condition our behavior. I talk to them about the Fitbit, which you wear around your wrist. It gives you information about how many steps you take, and then you adjust your behavior. Maybe you change the way you activate yourself in order to change the data. And then the data, then in that feedback loop that comes from your altered behavior, then changes your behavior again, you know, and it's, it's a really interesting way. 
way in which I think we tend to separate out technology from the body, but our technologies are always also embodied and our bodies are also always, and I would say increasingly technological. I think that's right. And I, and I think there are also some market limits. One case I would point out is the case of Abilify My Sight, M-Y-C-I-T-E. Abilify is a second generation antipsychotic medication that's been around, I think, since 2003, if I'm not mistaken. And nonetheless, the makers of Abilify decided it would be a good idea to design a digital version of this drug that would allow for the clinician and for the patient and for their family to monitor compliance. You know, did you take your medicine today or not, right? So they had they devised a system whereby a chemical tracker would be added to the Abilify. When it's digested, it would signal a radio transmitter. The radio transmitter would then signal to your app or your phone, yes or no, I did or didn't, you know, I did or didn't take the medication at the appointed time. And so it was an extraordinary kind of technological kind of innovation, if that's what you want to call it, uh, designed to solve a problem, the problem being compliance with taking the meds when you're supposed to take them. But patients didn't want it. Nobody wanted to take a medicine, a digital pill. They had to pull it from the market. So there is a sense, and this was actually a digital pill where they literally were trying to use this this technology to monitor compliance and the market couldn't sustain it. And so the company had to pull it back. And so I think that there are limits and we're, we're still probing them though. Companies are going to continue to probe them in the, into the future. We probably have time for only a few more questions, but I wanted to end by asking you what you think universities, programs, and educators working with college students should do or what we should change or what we should practice in order to create a culture of ethical and equitable approaches to technology. I mean, we're training the next generation of technologists, right? That's what we're doing. How could we think differently about how we present and study the work of technology to better align with human values, with equity, with a view toward creating meaningful things uh, with and for each other? What would your vision be for change? I've been involved in these efforts here in my own own institution and as a result of my work of trying to have my colleagues, my students and others, you know, think differently about technology. I think the central barrier, the central roadblock, the central hang-up has to do with the taken for granted, right? Tech is one of these things everyone thinks they already know. And so especially when it comes to, say, a, bi a biology professor, or you know, they think they know, right, or you know, a physicist, for example, right, they have a, a disciplinarily influenced conception of technology that's allowed them to do the work that they do that's meaningful. And what I'm asking them to often do is to set that aside and consider for a moment, you know, this third meaning of technology that's been developed in science and technology studies, it's been developed in history of science, history of technology, again, thinking about the work of people like Langdon Winner and many others, thinking about Troy Duster, the world building aspect of technology. This isn't about just a tech, a tool. This isn't just about your intentions. This is about the world these tools make and the world we build with them. And so with that, we can think about the environment and ecology in these kinds of techno-cultural techno terms. We can think about issues around psychiatry and mental health in these terms. I teach a course called Anti-Psychiatry that takes this view here at Wesleyan. We can obviously think about broader issues around technology and health using this framework, but it also matters in design and engineering, right? It matters 
for the, all the pre-med and pre-public health folks who were going to use the survey or the speculum or whatever other instrument, right, whatever the tool is they're going to use, they need to appreciate its historical, political, philosophical in social context, both its origins, right? The social world made that thing and it is making a world at the same time. And it's both of those processes that have to be understood in order for us to be able to start averting or at least talking about in conversation, you know, some of these traps that technology, you know, that we kind of fall in when we think that technology is going to save us and it doesn't, or when we think that that fix is coming and it just doesn't come in the same way we expect it. So I I think that this broader understanding helps with that. We are fighting against countervailing forces, right? Forces telling us that technology is going to save us, that technology is going to get us out of the climate crisis, technology is going to get us out of, you know, mass sickness and toxification of the earth. And so we're going to go to space, for goodness sakes, with technology. And I think all of those narratives have to be at least tempered and situated in the context of, okay, let's actually look and see and situate this in a proper context. Sometimes when I when I talk about this, I say that the major questions of uh, the next couple decades that co- are going to come up in technology and t- the realm of technological production are not, can we do this? Can we technically do this? But ought we to do this? Should we do this? The question of should we do this or ought we to do this is an ethical question. It's a question that I, I think ought to be informed by ethical traditions, by the very kind of work that you're doing in investigating the structure that undergird the assumptions we make about technology. And I want to end by asking you about that term uh, ethics or that that term, the ethical. We began our conversation by thinking about that term technological and perhaps defining that term in ways that aren't typically, I think, and conventionally thought about when we when we use that term technological i wonder if we could do a little bit of the same thing to the word ethical what are the ethical issues at stake for the multiple areas of your research and how should we understand that term ethics when we ask what ought we to do what should we do your question framed it in the right way should we do this should we build this my work in the context of ethics at least in terms of, of research scientists medical practitioners and others often ask the question, should you do a study about this? Do we really need to do a study about this? Sometimes asking questions is the most important act of power, right? Just simply asking. And I think we should even be cautious about some of the questions we ask. Who is getting to ask the questions? Whose questions are being pursued with institutional resources, for example, the state or massive corporations? Unfortunately, we're in a situation now where most of the questions being asked are being asked and answered to support the interests of of private industry or the government of a citizenry, and not to support the thriving of human beings and the multiple species with whom they interact. That's not the point of that science. It's not the point of that tech. The point of those things is to do other things. And so I think that that question of questions is the one I would center on, actually. Which questions are we asking? We don't have to ask this question. (laughs) We should be asking others. And so this, to me, is about whose science whose tech is being carried out, whose science is being pursued, whose techniques for survival are being enhanced. And I think we need a reversal of what we've been experiencing over the last, I don't know, at least since 
since World War II. Some might say for the last several hundred years, we're, we're certainly going in the wrong direction. So the question, question of ethics for me, taking it far outside its context in philosophy to just simple questions about who benefits, who wins, why are we doing that? We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't even be asking that question. We should let you ask your own question and help you answer it. And so I think that is where I am today in terms of thinking about thinking about research ethics. So many of the studies that I you know have, have read about, um, certainly read and studied, were studies that didn't need to be done, right? They were asking questions that we already, already had answers to, it seemed. And it seems so wasted, such a waste of talent. So we could be asking much more robust questions. We could be asking questions that support the least among us in much more direct ways and not simply just ask questions and design things in service of uh, private interests or in the interest of governance. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you.